For Pauline Wilson, one of the workfare workers I interviewed, it was this pervasive and very real threat of sanctions in combination with persistent mistreatment that led her to defy her supervisor altogether. In so doing, Pauline lost all of her cash benefits, her food stamps, and her Medicaid. She was unemployed for eight or nine months until she finally found what she considered to be a disreputable job in a bar. As she said with disgust, I would rather work in a bar than go through that. Even though I wasn't making that much money, I wasn't being disrespected like that or treated like I'm a common piece of trash. Because I'm not. I'm not. Coming up on The Janice Adams Show, a surprising look at our American way of work with Erin Hatton, author of the book Coerced, Work Under Threat of Punishment. Build Back Better. That's the mantra of the day as we work our way through the coronavirus pandemic. But better than what? Do we have the will to find a way to truly confront where we've been as a society? What the society has meant and done to empower and enrich some at the expense of far too many others? In our desire to get back to normal, should we really want to do that? Can we even afford to think about normal when our relationship to our worlds of work, especially the work of those traditionally otherized, is so fraught? With us on the show today is Dr. Erin Hatton, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Buffalo. Erin studies the world of work and labor. Her newest book couldn't be more timely as we struggle to reimagine new fields and new ways of work in the wake of the pandemic. Here she is talking about her newest book, Coerced, and the idea that grounded the story she would ultimately tell. One of the guiding quotes that I just kept at the forefront of my mind as I was researching and writing this book came from Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me, which I read as I was working on this book. And he wrote, you must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions all land with great violence upon the body. This book wasn't the book that I set out to write. I, I had a very different plan when I started this project. I was interested in workers who are unprotected by labor and employment laws. And I just wanted to understand how they experienced work, how they uh, interpreted what they did, if they experienced problems in the workforce, in the workplace. So I started off interviewing prisoners, incarcerated workers, about their labor behind bars. And then after talking with them, which was amazing and fascinating and disturbing, um, I interviewed welfare recipients who are required to work in order to receive public assistance. And um, as I was interviewing two, these two groups of workers, the power dynamics really came to the fore. It, my focus turned away from the importance of law, the importance of being covered by the minimum wage or the ability to organize a union, although those are important and I think they certainly inform what's going on with these workers. But really at the centerpiece of their story was the power that their bosses wielded over them. So I really changed my focus of the study to focus on that power, that type of coercion, which I went on to write about. Nearly half of the 43 workfare workers I interviewed had been sanctioned at least once, and a significant minority had been sanctioned multiple times. Yet all of them described the seemingly ubiquitous threat of sanctions. As 30-year-old Shara White said, quote, that's their favorite. Yeah, that's their favorite. They're always trying to throw that they're going to sanction you in your face. Now, for Pauline Wilson, one of the workfare workers I interviewed, it was this pervasive and very real threat of sanctions in combination with persistent mistreatment that led her to defy her supervisor and relinquish her right to public assistance altogether. Although at the time of our interview, the 57-year-old African-American woman worked overseeing a women's shelter, several years ago, she too was a workfare worker, first cleaning at a nonprofit organization and then picking up trash on the highway. Pauline said that she did not mind the work. Indeed, she believed that she had, quote, an obligation to work for her public assistance. 
but she detested the ill treatment that seemed to come along with it. As Pauline explained, quote, some people didn't make it after that first week because they couldn't take it. They said, you let them talk to you like that? And then some people say, they would cry, well, I need this money. But if you're not cut out for that kind of stuff, that kind of humiliation is not going to work. And there's nobody cut out for that. Nonetheless, Pauline lasted two years on work fair until she finally got fed up one hot summer day while picking up garbage on the highway when her supervisor would not let her get a drink of water. As Pauline remembered the incident, she asked her supervisor for a water break, but he declined saying, it ain't break time yet. Pauline persisted, I'm hot. I feel I'm gonna faint, she said. They even give water to thirsty dogs. Can I just have a little bit of water? He would not allow it. Break time was not for another 15 minutes. She went to the van to get a drink of water anyway, Pauline recalled, which her supervisor saw, of course. He told her to sit down for 10 minutes, and she did. After that time had passed, however, Pauline said that she went back to work because she knew that if she did not perform the labor, regardless of the reason, she believed that she would be marked non-compliant, which would result in a sanction. But as she got up to go back to work, Pauline said that her supervisor asked angrily, did I tell you to go back out there? It's been past 10 minutes, she remembered saying. You're going to mark down that I didn't do anything. Let me get back out there. I feel better now. But he refused. I didn't tell you that you can go back out, she called him saying. By then, Pauline had had enough. I was speaking my mind, she told me. To her supervisor, she said sassily, I'm sick of you yelling at me with your smart mouth. I'm not the one who needs this, she remembered him responding. You're the one who needs us. I get a paycheck every month. You know what, Pauline said? You can take that paycheck and stick it up your ass. Actually, in our interviews, she said to me, you can stick it up your mm-mm. <laughs> so we were back and forth until finally I said, you know what? You can kiss my mm-mm. So he made me sit down in the van for the rest of the day. When we got back to social services, I didn't even go upstairs. I didn't go sign out or nothing. I just said, y'all could have this. And I walked off. In so doing, Pauline lost all of her cash benefits, her food stamps, and her Medicaid. She was unemployed for eight or nine months until she finally found what she considered to be a disreputable job in a bar. As she said with disgust, I would rather work in a bar than go through that. Even though I wasn't making that much money, I wasn't being disrespected like that or treated like I'm a common piece of trash. Because I'm not. I'm not. Erin Hatton, our guest today, reading from her book, Coerced, Work Under Threat of Punishment. You know, in looking back, you could say that all of my research kind of revolves around workers who don't quite count as workers. My first book looked at the historical origins of the temp economy, the temporary work. And I I really kind of looked at their advertisements and how the early leaders of the temporary help industry convinced everyone that their business was legitimate business. And one of the main ways they did so was by saying, oh, don't worry, unions. Oh, don't worry, public. We're just getting Kelly girls, white middle-class housewives who are not real workers. We don't really care about them. Unions, you don't have to care about them because you already don't care about them. We're giving them something to do when they're bored, when their kids go to school. And that's almost literally what they said in their advertisements. So it's really they're using this gendered and racialized campaign to justify this sector of the economy that went on to worsen working conditions for lots of workers. Why did it worsen it? What early temp leaders did, I mean, so they kind of made inroads during this time by selling Kelly girls, by selling these white middle-class housewives who weren't real workers. And then once they got that inroad, once they got their foot in the door, because people were really suspicious. They, unions would have fought against them otherwise. Um, Once they got their foot in the door, then with the decline of unions, um, they were able to expand, expand, expand. And when workers, regular workers, see that they can be replaced with temps, as many of them have, then they're less likely to protest poor working conditions. They're less likely to push for a raise. They're less likely to organize a union. Um, And that's what we've seen over the past 30 to 40 years. It sounds very sinister. You know, 
I mean, I'm not going to go back and say that they intended the outcome that came about some 40 years later. I don't know if they actually saw that far. They certainly did want and believe that temps were the great solution to all sorts of business problems. And they certainly told business owners that that was the case. In the 1970s, temp leaders said, shift all your permanent workers over to the temps. We'll take care of them. We'll take care of that payroll nonsense. You don't even have to worry about them. You don't even have to pay them when they go to the bathroom or get some water or go to lunch. So they were using very, I mean, they believed that this was better for businesses. It was a very explicit campaign. Um, Did they intend to worsen working conditions for workers? Not outright, but it was a logical consequence of what they are selling. So, the society that they're selling it to, this is the 1950s. Mm-hmm. So we're dealing with a post-World War II society. Mm-hmm. Many of the adults have gone through the Depression, the Great Depression. There is a certain view of work and who gets to do the work. It's a segregated society. It's a stratified society. It's a McCarthy-era society. That's me understanding it from the historical side, but what does that mean for the actual worker themselves? Why did they sign on for this? The temp sector enabled some women who would not otherwise have been able to find jobs because of pregnancy bans or marriage bans. They could in fact find work in as temps. Other disadvantaged workers as well, um, there's in fact, uh, I think it was not an evil, it was a good temp agency in New York City at the time that was specifically black owned and designed for getting black people into corporate America, right? So they, they didn't have all have evil intentions, right? Many actually went in with a way of getting the goal of getting people into the workforce who might not otherwise get it. And they really did see themselves as um, providing employers with some flexibility, right? If your secretary calls in sick, who are you going to have there for a week? So they were kind of allowing for the flexibility that we simply assume uh, employers want and have today. Even though we're living in a society today where we have the so-called gig workers, it's making me wonder if that way of looking at workers and the pitch to the workers and to the employers could have come about the same way in a society that was approaching feminism, in a society that was moving itself consciously away from racism. You know, pre-Gloria Steinem, (laughs) pre-her going behind the scenes for the uh, Playboy Club, So, you know, it's interesting The early temp leaders were very anti-feminist and also they strategically embraced some rhetoric of feminism to recruit women and also to justify this sector. So they were very strategic in their advertisements and their use of feminist rhetoric, at least when it became more commonplace in the 1960s, the late 60s and 70s. So they would say, and they were talking to white middle-class women, I should note, but women come into the workplace, find adventure, do new things, buy new things, but at the end of the day, you go home to your husband and your children. So they were kind of offering them this limited form of adventure and independence and autonomy quite explicitly, but then they would, you know, as I argue in the book, they would keep domesticity in place. They would go home at the end of the day. They would also explicitly assure their husbands that, that their wives would not be in trouble. So they did kind of adopt some notions of autonomy for this sector of women, um, while also not disrupting patriarchy, right? Not disrupting the, the reign of domesticity and their role as primarily mothers and caretakers for their husbands and their children. Would Rosie the Riveter have accepted a job under those terms? So Rosie the Riveter was allowed into the workplace, and then at least some of them, some of the Rosies, were forced back home when the soldiers returned. Not all of them, as we know. Um, And it was a little bit of a similar dynamic, like we'll take these women um, when we need them, but they're not here to stay. We'll send them back home at the end of the day to their husbands. You've dealt with three categories of workers, as you say. So we can 
pull ourselves back and say, well, I'm not a prison worker, so that wouldn't happen to me. We can talk about the workfare workers and you can, we can say, well, you know, I, I am kind of middle class, but you know, I've graduated college and I, I have some other, so it really doesn't apply to me. But when we look at the Kelly girls and I think of the current gig economy and what that has done in the midst of COVID, I do think that this exactly what you're saying is kind of the broader takeaway from all of my work. And the moral is if we carve out any one group of workers, if we carve out any one group as being less than others in some way, but we can say, Oh, they're just prisoners. What do you expect? They're behind bars. We can say, Oh, they're welfare recipients. What do you expect? They're on welfare. We can say, Oh, well, they're Kelly girls. They're just housewives. Who cares, right? They're not real workers. When you take away any one group and say they are less than in some way, it is opening the door. I mean, so if we could separate ourselves from them and say they're somehow different from us, which of course they are not, right? Everyone else will eventually suffer. They, it lowers the bar from everyone else. As anti-abolitionists argued so many years ago, when some of us are not free, none of us are free, right? We are all connected. When any one group is segregated and separated and distinguished as less than in work or otherwise, everyone else, the working conditions, the rights will be degraded. 20 years after the height of the labor movement then, when people had their lives on the line, which many people do not realize today because we don't talk about labor history in this country. Really, we don't. We celebrate Labor Day, but it doesn't even begin to tell the story of what people went through for the rights of labor. Um, how does this happen? What cultural, sociological behaviors are in place to allow this to come about within, at that point, recent memory of the people who had to put their lives on the line for the rights of workers? Well, it's really about the race, class, privilege, and disadvantage of white women. So they had long been carved out when, when wage work was really institutionalized and universalized for white folks with industrialization white women were increasingly taken out of that group and protected, which plenty of middle-class women activists fought for to be protected in that way, but they were excluded as from this category of wage work. As we know, black women were not, right? They were always deemed to be workers, always expected to be workers, and in fact, believed to mean that you couldn't work black women hard enough, right? It was a very different race, gender dynamic for black women, white women were different. They were seen as too vulnerable, vulnerable to the vices in the workplace, too weak to handle work. And so they were carved out. And this cultural belief system remained in place through, well, you know, near the 21st century, through most of the 20th century. And so this is why when the temp companies came along and said, look, we're just keeping her busy until Johnny comes home from school. We're just giving her something to do to help pay for a fur coat. Um, this was fine. It was seen as not a problem because she, she's not a real worker. Erin, was your mother a real worker? She certainly was. She had been trained as a social worker and worked in the field of social work for the early part of her career. And then we had a geographical shift. My family moved from Berkeley, California to Athens, Georgia in 1971, which was quite a change for everyone. And they had adopted my brother. She was at home with him for a while, and then she ended up going into editing in a literary magazine. Today on The Janice Adams Show, I'm speaking with Erin Hatton, author of the book, Coerced, Work Under Threat of Punishment. More of our conversation after the break. our guest, Erin Hatton. She is the author of the book, Coerced, the subtitle, Work Under Threat of Punishment. And if you can believe it or not, this is not a historical book. 
this is a book that is relevant to us today. Erin, in the last segment, we were talking about the Kelly girls and, you know, it, it took us in an interesting direction. But how does that relate to this work under threat of punishment and the three categories of workers that you already described that um, were kind of included in the book. Do you refer to these Kelly girls in this book? No, I do not. They're not actually a part of this book on labor coercion. I guess it's because I set out to study in coerced workers who are not protected by labor and employment laws, such as prisoners, such as welfare recipients, such as student athletes and graduate students. Um, Kelly girls or temps nowadays are protected under labor and employment laws, theoretically, though, as I write about in my first book, The Temp Economy, they do often also fall through the cracks of labor and employment law. Could you read something to us from that book? Sure. This book is The Temp Economy, From Kelly Girls to Permatemps in Postwar America. This is from the start of chapter one. A group of suburban white middle-class housewives gathered in a local hotel, not to exchange pie recipes or tips for home furnishings, but to talk about the drudgery of housework and the benefits of working for wages. They watched a film that praised working outside the home as a way for housewives such as themselves to experience exciting opportunities and a sense of self-fulfillment. A consciousness-raising group during feminism's second wave? No, the year was 1961 two years before the publication of The Feminine Mystique, Betty Friedan's best-selling book that is often credited with reviving middle-class feminism. Rather, this was a meeting held by the Kelly Girl Service to recruit white middle-class housewives for temporary work. Quote, the next time you get fed up with the household routine, the man in the film urged, join the Kelly Girl Service. And as I go on to explain in the chapter, this meeting to recruit Kelly girls was not an isolated event. It was part of a very broad-based campaign that this new, young, small sector of the economy, the, the temp sector, used to recruit white middle-class housewives to become temps, to what, do what they call cap-gal Fridays, come in and work as a secretary for a day or a week while your real secretary was on leave. This could have been an interesting, but maybe not all that historically significant phenomenon, right? Using white middle-class femininity to sell temp work. But I argue that it was actually incredibly important because they kind of exploited, strategically used this sector of workers who were not considered workers to make an inroad into the labor market. And once they got that inroad, they expanded. They expanded dramatically so that they weren't just trying to hire and sell uh, housewives for one day a week or one day a month. They were trying to replace all permanent workers with temps across all sectors of the economy. It shouldn't be seen that way, but if we look, which is the way it was treated, as what it meant to be a worker in America, being white males from white males semi-disfranchised to white males of privilege, but basically the standard being white males. How did it contrast? So one of the things that I talk about in the book is I, I differentiate between the temp industry's marketing campaign and the reality on the ground. And so in the early years, their marketing campaign was only about selling women, white middle-class women. Um, and this was really, I argue, to avoid um, really the threat from unions who would be very big labor would be very upset with them if they are trying to make inroads into unionized jobs. But in point of fact, they were also quietly under wraps, growing, um, making inroads into sectors of men's work as well. In the classifieds ads, they would market um, some forms of, we would call it day labor to get today, seasonal work. They would always say that these men were unskilled to differentiate uh, them from the highly skilled white gloved Kelly girls that they sold in most of their advertisements. So they were also making inroads into men's work, 
but quietly to avoid regulation, to avoid unions from coming after them because unions were powerful enough at that time that they would have been able to quash this very young sector of the economy. But by the time, by the 1970s, when union power was starting to recede, the temp industry sector was starting to flourish, um, unions were weak enough that they weren't going to go after them anymore. Could this society that you're referring to here the society that also produces the kind of work environment that you refer to in your newest book, Coerced, could that flourish in a society that was not a capitalist economy? Oh, no, certainly not. I mean, all of these types of labor that I examine, whether it's the early Kelly girls or now prison labor or workfare, all of these segments of workers are really, they're segments that have been both excluded and included in the capitalist economy, right? They're included because they are in fact being used as workers, but they're excluded. They're purposely and strategically marginalized from labor protections, from cultural um, rights and privileges and the dignity that we give to workers, even despite the work that they are performing. So we carve out prisoners and say, oh, they're different, but we'll take their labor. We'll take the profits from their labor. We'll carve out workfare workers and we'll say, oh, they're different. They're not real workers. They're dependents on the state. Even though, you know, I have student loans, that's also dependent on the state being able to go to college, but whatever, no mind, I'm not cast as a dependent. Workfare workers are cast as a dependent and therefore they are carved out as real workers as well, but we'll take their labor, right? We'll extract their profits from their labor even as we carve them out of the category of work and worker. Growing up as a teenager, looking forward to, I assume, going out to work for yourself. What did you think the world of work really was? You know, that's a really good question. And I did not have a strong vision as a child. I mean, this is rather dark, but I think I always imagined that I would actually die by age 21 because I couldn't imagine my future as an adult. You know, my family has a, has a slightly different background. My father grew up in an orphanage outside of London. My, on the other side, my mother's mother was a, a very active communist in California in the 1930s and 40s and was working adamantly and openly in the labor movement then. So I, I don't know, I had a lot of competing um, views and certainly not a very uh, bright view of what the world, world of work might give me or what I might get out of it. Um, I should also know, though, that my father, at least in my early years, was also a professor of English at the University of Georgia. So at least I think I only ended up going to grad school because I didn't know what else to do. I, I didn't have a vision. Um, and so I just kind of happened into that path with a lot of luck and a lot of privilege. Professor of English, you hear a lot of Charles Dickens? Uh, yes, my father had me reading Charles Dickens at a very young age. And you know why I asked the question. Um, uh, yes. <laughs> I, um, I mean, no one is more Dickensian on work and labor than Dickens. <laughs> so, That's true. That's fair enough. <laughs> I um, guess so. I guess I, it got ingrained in me young. You know, it, it, it just strikes me when, when you say that, because I always feel that as a reader, as a writer, we are very autobiographical and we don't have to deal in any pop psychology. It's just obvious. Other than being coerced as a student because someone has a leverage over us, either we read this or we fail and we don't, you know, get a good grade and then we don't get a good job. Other than that, we basically read whatever we're reading because it fulfills some need that we have. I'm working on a book of my own right now. And I do think more and more that that is a factor that we have as writers as well. So it's interesting that you would go to that personal story in terms of your awareness of labor. At what point then did you become conscious of the, that background propelling your scholarly choices? That is a good question. And I, 
I don't know if I've ever fully become conscious. Um, I, you know, I did not go to graduate school with the intention of studying labor. I wanted, I had some kind of vague ideas about studying community development. I'd lived in um, Africa for a couple of years before that. And I was interested in, I was interested in women's work and community development. And then very early on in graduate school, I heard a, a professor kind of give the spiel about his sector of sociology and he, it was all about labor. And I, was convinced that was it. That's what I was going to do. And I've, I've never looked back. Um, even though, you know, work is not the sexiest of topics. Um, it just continues to drive me. And I, I think that you're right, that our work is kind of inherently autobiographical, even though I've kind of convinced myself like, oh, well, you know, I've, I've never really been incarcerated. So it's not about me. Um, but I think it, it really is, of course, at the end of the day. Um, but it, I do think that the the power dynamics involved in this world and certainly for people who are so kind of in many ways purposefully marginalized and disadvantaged while their labor is being extracted really um, I think it's an important thing to think and write about. As we go to break is there something that you would like to read to us from the current book from Coerced? Sure, I'll read the opening of the book, a segment on a former prisoner, Apache, and his view of prison labor as, as both slave labor and also kind of what you expect, what you deserve behind bars. I start the book with a quote from Apache. Now for me, Apache's words kind of embody the multiplicity of views, the complexity of the views of many of the prisoners that I interviewed about their labor behind bars. I write, Apache is compact and muscular. He talks fast and low in an eloquent rumble. At 34 years old, this black American man recently finished his second stint in a New York state prison where he was incarcerated, he explained sort of philosophically, for a certain lifestyle an ontological way of being in the world rather than for any single crime. Quote, in order to change that lifestyle, he said, it's a process. You have to get stripped down and look at yourself. Now, like all able-bodied prisoners in New York State, Apache was required to work in prison. He worked six hours a day in the mess hall, preparing and serving food, washing dishes, scouring the kitchen, for which he was paid between 15 and 17 cents an hour, or nearly $13 every two weeks. Earning these wages in prison, Apache said, quote, you convince yourself that you're in a good position as far as, you know, getting by. Because you locked down, you ain't got to pay no light bill and this, that, and the other. But it's still slave labor at the end of the day because you don't get to call off. You don't get sick days. You don't get a union. You don't get none of the benefits of a normal worker. You can't even really advance. You can't aspire to be the boss one day. And I mean, you're getting paid 15 cents an hour. Yet, even as Apache described prisoners' work as slave labor, he argued that it should not be otherwise. Prisoners should not earn the higher wages and other benefits of a normal worker, he said, because the purpose of prison labor is punishment. It's not supposed to be a camp, he explained. Quote, it's not supposed to be a happy place. We're in prison. We're not supposed to come in and kick our feet up. That was Erin Hatton reading from her new book, Coerced, Work Under Threat of Punishment. More here on The Janice Adams Show after the break. Here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest Erin Hatton. She is the author of a new book, Coerced, and it is as difficult and as important as you would hope. It is talking about involuntary labor in American society. Erin, you have a section of the book where you talk about a student. And we would not normally think about a student being in this category. Would you read that section, please? Sure, yeah. So in the book, I also include college athletes, specifically football and basketball players, as well as graduate students in the sciences who labor in their advisors' labs. And I should note here that, you know, both of these groups 
look, they haven't been coerced to go play football, right? They haven't been coerced to go to graduate school and get their PhDs. So it's different from prison labor. And certainly they're very different in terms of how marginalized they are, how vulnerable they are, how exploited they are. But at the same time, I do argue in this book that they experience a similar type of power dynamic while they're on the job. So once they're in their football program or their basketball program, these coaches have enormous power over their lives. Um, some of the athletes I interviewed recognized that power and felt deeply exploited by that, while others did not. Um, so one of the athletes that I interviewed, who's actually a former athlete, um, the pseudonym he gave me, and I should note that all of the names I use in the book are pseudonyms that they chose so they could find themselves in my work. Um, his pseudonym was Zachary Lane, and he told me about his view of college football. And from the beginning, he believed it was exploitative, and he thought he believed that the, the locus of that exploitation was the NC2A. As he said, quote, the NC2A is just a business that uses the cheapest product or college athletes, to generate revenue. And to emphasize his point, this 29-year-old African-American man developed an extended analogy between Division I college athletics and pimps, on the one hand, and college athletes and prostitutes on the other. In both cases, those with power, quote, sell a dream and promise glamour in order to recruit and ultimately exploit their targets. As Zachary explained, a pimp might recruit prostitutes by saying, quote, oh, we're gonna bring you over here, we're gonna make you look nice, we're gonna get you all dressed up. You like wearing nice stuff, don't you? Yeah, you look good, you look really good. And what do the college coaches tell you, he went on to say. He said, quote, oh man, I think you should come and play right away for us. Don't you look good in this jersey? Look at our facilities, this is real nice right here, right? Look at our lockers, look at our cleats. For an 18-year-old kid, Zachary said, you're like, oh yeah, I like this, this is nice. But when you get there, it's work, just like the woman. And she might like to have sex already, and if she does, that's even better, because I don't have to break your mind now. You're gonna do this anyways. Like, for me, I'm gonna play football anyways. I might do it for free. But really, I'm paying for my education. Just like the woman is having sex with these men, getting this money, bringing it back to the pimp, to the NC2A, or to the university, right? She's bringing the money back to daddy. She's getting taken care of, and it looks good. That's my favorite employee, the pimp says. I love you, I'm gonna take care of you. I'm gonna make sure everything is good. You're hurt? Okay, I'll take care of your doctor's bill. You go to jail? I'm gonna bail you out. I'm gonna take care of you. Yet, as Zachary went on to explain later in the interview, both prostitutes and college athletes are at risk of, quote, getting used up. If they're done with you, they're done with you, he said. I'm struck by an athlete who we think of as virile and, you know, gladiator type person being in this category of working under threat of punishment. Full title, coerced, subtitle, work under threat of punishment. What is the punishment? So their coaches wield a number of levers of punishment over them. The main most common one is simply losing playing time not being able to play. Um, now, for most of us outside of the world of sports, that may not sound like all that much, right? Okay, so you can't play in the game this weekend, no big deal. But in fact, this is incredibly important for these athletes. So for the vast, vast majority of student athletes, and these are elite athletes, they, the ones I interviewed were from division one, football and basketball teams. Some of them were at the top teams of the country. Um, Getting to play at this level is the apex of their athletic career. They have been working on this for years, decades, and there's a finite number of games across a finite number of seasons that they can be an athlete, that they can do what they love to do, that they can do what they've worked so hard to do. So having to sit out a game, they said, could be devastating. And of course, the vast majority of these athletes aren't going to go on to pay, play professionally. This is it. This is their one chance, and they can lose that chance. But that's not the only power that their bosses, their coaches, wield over them. So not only can they take away their playing time, which would also, by the way, diminish their chances of being recruited professionally, because if you're not playing, you're not going to get recruited. And also, if you're seen as not playing, 
as they told me the the NFL recruiters and the NBA recruiters and the WNBA recruiters are going to go to their coaches and ask about those players, ask them what they're like. And these athletes said that if their coaches told them that they were uncoachable, meaning that they didn't take direction, they didn't do what their coach said, they weren't always submissive, then they wouldn't be recruited because they could always find another athlete who was coachable, i.e. docile, submissive. So they could take away their chance to play in college. They can take away their chance to be recruited professionally. And also they control their scholarships. They can also take away their education and their potential. That's right. So if most of them leave athletics, what are you gonna do if you're not able to finish your college career? It's not quite a lever of power in the same way, but one of the ways you see this play out in the worst instances is that they pressure them to play through injuries. And what this means is that some of these uh, athletes come out not only perhaps not finishing their education, but physically impaired, unable to work in a regular job, unable to continue with life as you might expect because they are profoundly injured by putting their bodies on the line and being pressured to do so by their coaches. But as one athlete that I interviewed said, in fact, I believe it was Zachary, he said, if you're, if you're injured and your coach tells you to play, you're going to play. That's just what you do. In each of the three categories that you have chosen, what is it that puts them in the category of working under threat of punishment? Would you go to each of them so we can understand? All workers, all regular workers, experience some degree of coercion, right? We don't have a real free choice between working or not. We need to work in order to feed ourselves and our family, right? That's not a real choice. That's, that's economic coercion. And so it's called economic because it revolves around money. And our bosses have a lot of power over us, right? The threat of being able to fire you and take away your wages or demote you or put you on the night shift. All of this is real power that bosses wield over workers. But that's a different form of coercion than the type that I'm examining in this book, which these other types of workers experience and many regular workers do, I would say. But so for these workers, I argue that their bosses wield an even more expansive punitive power over them power that doesn't just revolve around their wages, but that can kind of curtail their lives in more expansive ways. So take, for example, prisoners. When they're working behind bars, if they don't do anything that their boss, i.e. the corrections officer, tells them to do, like say, clean the outhouse without any gloves, or um, clean up blood from a fight without proper equipment, or as one former prisoner that I interviewed said, his punishment that his boss gave him was to clean the floor with a toothbrush. He said, no, that was too disrespectful. So the punishment that they face is being put in solitary confinement. That is being in an enclosed and segregated cell for 23 hours a day without human interaction, being cut off from their family and friends, being cut off from rec recreation, being cut off from decent food to eat. This is the very definition of torture for humans, because we are inherently social beings, you're cut off from everyone and there's no limit to the length of time that you can be put in solitary confinement in American prisons. So they're sent to solitary confinement, which many of the prisoners I interviewed call the box. They're put in the box if they don't comply. The next category. So for workfare workers, now, the punishments they face are not as severe as prisoners, right? They're not being put in solitary confinement, but they can be kicked off and are readily kicked off, just like prisoners are readily put in solitary confinement. Even more often, welfare recipients or workfare workers, those who have to work for access to public assistance, they're kicked off. They're kicked off of public assistance, but their lifetime allotment of that public assistance keeps just diminishing even as they don't get it. They lose their food stamps, they lose their housing vouchers, they lose their utility um, vouchers. For many of these, being sanctioned means, meant that they and their families ended up homeless. Or if you're already living in a homeless shelter in New York City, for example, and you're sanctioned from welfare, you will be kicked out of the homeless shelter. So their bosses wield power over their access to the social safety net. The prisoner, the workfare participant, 
and the athlete. In each case, there is a narrative that most of us carry around in our head relating to these three categories that in no way includes that. We get, well, they're prisoners, you know, uh, they're criminals. Then you have the workfare participant. Well, you know, these people who just don't want to work. So that's the leverage so that we don't really understand what's going on. But I would ask, having done all of this work, what is your greatest surprise in terms of who benefits from this kind of situation? Exactly what you're describing is one of the things that I do in the book. I analyze how these kind of cultural rhetorics are used, and they're very different rhetorics. On the one hand, the rhetoric of immorality, the rhetoric of criminality among prisoners and welfare recipients. And then on the other hand, totally different, the rhetoric of privilege, the rhetoric of being lucky to be where you are for athletes and graduate students. So we have these two seemingly divergent rhetorics that are deployed for the same end to carve out these groups of workers as being different, as being idiosyncratic in the same way. They're not real workers, they're criminals. Or they're not real workers, they're lucky to be where they are. They're lucky to get what they get. And they're told that explicitly. And if they complain, they're effectively told, uh, we can replace you, you're lucky to be here, shut up and get on the field. I hope to kind of expose these rhetorics that are used that really they seem quite different and these groups of workers seem quite different and and taken in isolation they would seem idiosyncratic but when you put them side to side you begin to see a pattern a pattern of um, labor extraction at the same time as exclusion from employment rights exclusion from the dignity of and respect of work exclusion from um, all of the status that work normally yields to people, all of the protections that we have attributed to work. Work, being a productive member of society is highly valued in our society. We continue over and over again to seek and often find dignity in labor. But that ability to seek and find dignity as labor is not made available to these groups of workers. So we, we take their labor while kind of pulling the rug from underneath them and saying, but you're not real workers. And you see all of these institutions, which are effectively white institutions, are benefiting from their labor again and again and again. Prisoners are performing all of the labor to keep those institutions running while getting virtually nothing for doing so. And I should note that while they do get paid a little bit in New York state prisons, in many states they do not get paid anything at all. So again and again, we're kind of taking their labor while also claiming that they're not included and we're benefiting from it. This is such a profound topic. I think it goes so much to the core of our society in ways that we don't normally think about it. And as we are taping this, so many Americans have taken to the streets over the murder of George Floyd by the police. What do you take away from all of this? Well, that's a really good question. I guess, you know, police violence against mostly black people has, has been so brutal, so pervasive for so long. So I, I am heartened. I also, I have to admit that I'm also very scared that it will not last, that we won't make the systemic changes that are required because I mean really what I talk about in the book are systems um, and within these systems individuals operate and even the workers that I interview they have all different views of their labor like I talk about Apache he believed that prisoners should be exposed to slave labor right that's he essentially justified it for prisoners um, because in point of fact the workers that I interviewed are American workers, and they too are kind of steeped in these cultural views that justify um, violence against prisoners, violence against people who are perceived to be criminals through racist ideologies. So this is all to say that I'm, I'm also quite fearful that we won't fundamentally change the systems that need to be changed, the institutions that need to be changed in order to really enact long-lasting change. On the positive side, 
one could point to some of the changes that have been put in place by athletes since you conceived your book. Let me ask you if you have spoken to Zachary since then, what his response has been. I haven't talked to him personally, no. I think that many of the athletes would be excited. They would be invigorated. The lesson that we do learn about resistance and activism is that we are so much more powerful when we come together, right? And that is what we are seeing with athletes. Athletes who are now taking a stand vis-a-vis George Floyd and his murder. Um, Athletes who are taking a stand together um, to demand rights and protections, to demand the ability just to earn money from their athleticism, which they have prohibited from doing. But the problem is is that these workers, as as the title of my book suggests, they labor under the threat of punishment. They're incredibly fearful because they're the punishments that can be wielded against them by the NC2A, by their coaches, by the public, are extraordinarily harsh. And so they're taking great, great risks. We saw this with Colin Kaepernick as well. They're taking enormous risks. They're putting their whole careers on the line to resist in even very modest ways. Um, And so it does reveal the courage that they're displaying, that all of the people who are displaying, who are putting their lives on the line, sometimes their careers on the line, to protest this pervasive injustice. Our guest today has been Erin Hatton, author of the book, Coerced, Work Under Threat of Punishment. Erin, thank you so much for joining us today and for bringing this topic to us. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. My thanks to Erin Hatton and to you for joining us on the Janice Adams Show today. For the podcast and for more information about today's show, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. Hashtag staying home for COVID-19. I'm Janice Adams in cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill post-production Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janice Adams LLC, All Rights Reserved.